All right, if we can start making our way to our seats, we'll get started this morning. Good morning, good morning. I want to welcome you to Gateway Baptist Church. For those of you that are visiting with us for the first time or maybe after a couple, we just want to extend you a special greeting. So glad you're here to be with us. Welcome to all of you watching us online. We're so glad you're able to join in worship with us this morning. Just have a couple of announcements. Um, and just as a reminder, y'all have seen in the hallway, Operation Christmas Child is up and going, preparing for the holiday to get those boxes across the world. So we do have some boxes left inside the hallway, which I want to remind you that they're available. Uh, they're due back in five weeks on November 19th would be the final day to get them in before we take them to the drop-off spot for them to get processed in Atlanta. Also, just some friendly reminders of some opportunities for you guys to connect in a deeper way in community. Um, the life groups that we have started up this past fall, there's a new parenting focus group uh, that Kyle Watley on the drums, and his wife Kayla over here started. Um, at the, he's going to be here on campus every other week. Um, there's a new group in Prattville, Trevor and Sarah Mendenhall's home, that they've opened up to have begun a life group up there in Prattville. And all this information is on our contact page on our website at gatewaybaptist.com with all this information. And uh, one more group we want to just remind you of and encourage you with, Melissa Harris. Where are you? There she is. Come on up, girl. Melissa's going to encourage you guys and just remind us of a group uh, for those that are in this certain age bracket and demographic. Hello, my name is Melissa Harris and you might recognize me from, I spent a lot of time with the kids. I teach the first and second grade Sunday school class and we did Parents Night Out last week. Um, my husband, I know, not last week, last night, excuse me. Uh, it was a long, it was a long night so it felt like a long time ago. <laughs> um, my husband over there is Andrew Harris. And um, we are a part of the young adult group. We help lead it with an awesome, awesome leadership team. And we did do Parents Night Out last night. So I just want to say thank you for sharing your kids with us. It's a really cool experience. We love to do it. We love to meet that need in the church. It's an easy hole for us to fill. Um, and we are, like I said, part of the young adult group. We try to serve the church as much as we can. And we also try to be a community and live life on life together. So if that's something you're interested in and you're in, like, our age bracket, I'll say our youngest member is about 20 outside of college, and our oldest is 33-ish. So if you're in that range and you think you're interested in that, you can come see me, Andrew, any of the young adults over there. Y'all wave. Young adults, give us a little, little pageant wave of that. Y'all look great. So, yeah, if you want to come um, hang out with us, we do meet at 630 on, on Thursdays, and this month we're at our house. And we also eat lunch after church. So if you want an informal way to hang out with us, we usually eat lunch. So, yeah, anyway, y'all come hang out. Y'all, let's thank them for last night and how they serve. We're so grateful. 
Thank you all so much. You guys do a wonderful job serving our body and just showing the love of Christ to so many. And again, so if you have any other questions about connecting, please come talk to me. There's wonderful Bible studies that go on on Sunday mornings over here in the gymnasium from 9 to 10:15. Other opportunities with Bible studies throughout the week. So just please, if you have any questions, please come chat with me. We can talk about that to get you plugged in. Well, let's stand before the Lord and prepare our hearts to worship him through song. Just want to read some scripture over us as we begin to worship him today. This is Psalm 145, verses 1 through 9. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Let's worship him this morning. Sing this with wonder of wonders. Wonder of wonders, what love is this that Christ would die for me? His goodness, his merit, his righteousness, this sinner's only plea. Oh, foolish pride, be crucified.
gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer. There is no
you reign over all situations, Lord, that you are the, the God who's in control of our tomorrows, and that we have nothing to boast in except for you, Christ, that we can't do anything apart from you. Lord, we praise you that it's not our own strength, but it's through you working in, in us through the believers. Lord, we praise you and thank you. We thank you for this time that we can gather together as a body of believers. We thank you that, that you brought us here together today in your sovereignty. Lord, we thank you for the young adult ministry here at Gateway. We pray that uh, as Andrew and Melissa are hosting the group at their house, that the group of young adults would grow in their faith, that they would be salt and light in their spheres of influence where you've sovereignly placed them here at this time. Lord, we thank you for being able to partner with the, the local church here in Montgomery and, and throughout the world. Lord, we, we pray for Pastor John Halbrooks and the ministry with the Mystic Church in Highland Gardens as they reach the Mystic community with the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would move in that community and that that those in, in the Mystic community would repent and believe and, and trust you for all their tomorrows. Lord, we we know you are sovereign and in control, and we pray that your will would be done now in Israel. Lord, we pray that people would come to faith in Jesus, and Lord, we, we pray that the, uh, the fighting and the, the death would, would stop. But most of all, Lord, we, we pray that your sovereign will will be done. Lord, we... Thank you for our, our partners around the world in global missions and sharing the gospel. We pray for Pastor Mark in Haiti. We pray that you would provide uh, him and his congregation protection, that you would give them all that they need, and that you would give them uh, wisdom as they minister in such a dark place. We pray that, that the gospel would go forth there in a mighty way. 
Lord, we thank you that it's all all you, not not us, and that everything is yours. You own everything. We thank you that you've given us uh, the opportunity to give back a small portion of what what you have given to us, and we pray that the offering that's been given today and online would would go to advance your kingdom here in Montgomery, in Gateway, and throughout the world. And we thank you for, for this opportunity to gather here to hear your word. Lord, we pray for Grady this morning that as he shares that we would not hear Grady, but we would hear you through the message that he's delivering. Lord, we praise you and thank you. Amen. And first to fourth graders, you are dismissed to kids' worship. If you'd like to go this morning, so first to fourth graders, you may go to kids' worship this morning. It's causing a traffic jam for the praise team to get off the platform. I like it. <laughs> CJ, do you have them this morning? Have fun, Pastor CJ. <laughs> We'll find Genesis chapter 2 in your copy of God's Word. If you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, welcome to you. We are doing a, about a year-long study through Genesis 1 to 11. It is the foundations of our faith, and there's so much riches to understanding who God is and who we are and His will for us and for the world. And so we're going through a year of Genesis 1 to 11. And we find ourselves this morning in Genesis chapter 2. Now, last week, if you were with us, you saw that we began a new section of Genesis. Genesis has these important words that we see in the English called, these are the generations of. It's the Hebrew word toledot, and these mark the transitions of the book of Genesis. Last week we began in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, the first toledot, the first section of Genesis. And it's the historical count of the first people. And what we saw last week in Genesis 2, 4 through 7 was that God carefully made the first man, Adam. If you remember from last week, he took the first man, he made the first man by taking the dust of the ground and forming it and shaping it like a potter would do and then breathing life into it. And that special way God created the first man shows us how frail and how dependent we are on God. It's something that should humble us. But yet as God breathed into the first man, it shows how special humanity is to God, and that honors us. So our origins remind us that we're both humbled and honored all at the same time. Now today we pick up in verse 8 of Genesis 2, and we're still in this same Toledot, the same account of the first people that God made. Today we're going to be looking at Genesis 2, 8 to 14, and looking at how God makes the place for the first people to live. So Verses 4 to 7 last week is God makes the first person. Now we're looking at verses 8 to 14 today of the first place for the first people to live. So as we work through these verses this morning, look for what does God tell us about the home for the first people? But even more than that, why? Why does God give us this detail? God did not have to show this to us. He did not have to give us seven verses of detail about the first place. So why is he telling us this? And particularly, what is he wanting us to understand about himself by giving us seven verses about the first place he made for the first people. So let's be looking for those details as we read. We're going to look at Genesis 2, verses 8 to 14 this morning. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'm reading out the English Standard Version, and we will also have the words on the screen. Starting in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, 
And there he put the man whom he had formed. Now the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east out of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are a revealing God. God, that you've not hidden yourself from us, but you've shown us who we are. You've shown us our humble and yet honored origins. You even show us details about the first place you put Adam and then Eve. And so, Lord, as we dig into that this morning, I pray that you would teach us this morning. This would not just be interesting historical trivia for us, but God, this would be your breath of life to shape us and understand more of your character and your nature. And I pray that our trust in you would grow as we study your word this morning. So, Holy Spirit, have your way. Work in each of our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So if you want a simple summary of this text, I can give it to you in two words. Two words that tell us not only what happens, but tells us about the nature of God. And so a two-word summary of all these seven verses we just read is simply this, God provides. That's the whole, kind of in a nutshell, everything we see in these seven verses is God provides. It's God's generous provision for his people. So look at God's provision for his people. Go back to verse 8 where we began. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, as we begin in verse 8 here, we see the name of God. It's what we looked at last week, this massively significant name of God. This is the combined name Yahweh Elohim. Elohim, the name of God revealed in creation, the all-powerful God who speaks the universe into being, is also Yahweh, the all-caps Lord here, the God who relates in a covenant way to his people. And so today the text is all about Yahweh Elohim, the all-powerful God who relates to his people, joyfully making something for his people. We see it there in verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. God plants something. This is intentional design, intentional work on God's behalf of him making a home of provision for the first people. Now, usually at this point we start talking about the garden of Eden, our minds go to a question that's not the most important question. It's a secondary question that we normally focus on. That is, where was Eden? That's where most of us start thinking on this. That's not the point of the text. But since I raised the question, I should at least answer it, right? So where was the Garden of Eden? And the answer is, friends, we do not know. Now, yes, there are four rivers mentioned here. Look down at verse 11. The name of the first river is the Pishon. It's the one who flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. Go down to verse 13. This, the second river here is the Gihon, is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. If you talk to historians, no one has the foggiest idea where the Pishon or the Gihon rivers are. Those are ancient rivers and no one knows. There's theories based on the names of the peoples, but no one really knows. But most people start focusing in on verse 14 here. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east out of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Like, oh, good, good, I know where these are. These are rivers I'm familiar with. They originate in Turkey. They flow down through Iraq. They enter in the Persian Gulf. Look, the Garden of Eden must be then in Iraq. And that's a very popular theory. We can't prove that because that forgets something big that happened in Genesis 7, namely the flood. It was a catastrophic flood after this point in Genesis 7. And when the fountains of the deep open, the entire earth is reshaped. Continents can move. Rivers change. So the modern Tigris and Euphrates are simply rivers named for the ancient 
rivers that were somewhere in the world. And so there's no way for us to say that, yes, the Garden of Eden was in Iraq. There's only one location indicator for us at this point. That's back in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. Now, east of where? Now, if you think about it, that's kind of a vague reference. But remember when Moses wrote Genesis, when he wrote the Pentateuch, these first five books of the Bible, he wrote these while the Israelites were wandering in the Sinai Peninsula in those 40 years of desert wanderings. So he's writing from their reference point. So all we know from Scripture is the Garden of Eden was somewhere east of the Sinai Peninsula. That's a lot of land that could be on it. Yes, that could be Iraq, but there's a whole lot of stuff east of the Sinai Peninsula. That is all we are told. And the reason that's all we're told is because that's not the point of the text. God's emphasis is not for us to spend our days wondering where Eden might have been located so we could go travel to it. It's not there anymore. The point of the text is what God is doing for his people. And that's where we need to focus in on this because this text is all about God providing. It shows us the nature of God as a provider who finds joy in providing for people. In fact, the text here shows us God providing for people in three ways. As we work through the text, there's three huge ways God provides for his people. Number one, this text shows us that God provides for the physical needs of his people. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise to us because he's just formed man. He took dust to the ground, breathed life into it. He shaped it by design. He made people in his image. So God cares about our bodies. He made us the way we are. And so God cares about providing for our physical needs. Look down in verse 9 of our text. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. And notice this, and good for food. This word good means it accomplishes what it's supposed to do. So God provided trees with fruit that gave calories, that gave vitamins, that gave fiber to keep the digestive tract on track for the first people, right? He gave nutrition. God made food with nourishment for, to provide for his people. So he cared about their physical needs. But to live, we need more than food. We need water. So God provides water as well. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. So God provides water, not just a little water. This is a picture of abundant water. However big this river was in Eden, it was significant enough that it could split into four rivers that the scholars say went to the different parts of the world to water the entire earth. There was that much water for mankind in the first garden. This is a description of immensity of God's provision. The garden full of trees with food, a massive river full of water. The point is that God is delighting and providing everything his people need to live physically. But the point of that is not for us to go, well, that's great that God provided for Adam and Eve. The point is for us to see the nature of God here, that God is a God who still delights in providing for the needs of his people even today. Jesus tells us, it's a text that you're perhaps very familiar with, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, this is Jesus talking, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what will we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Why? Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But here it is for us. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
And all these things will be added to you. So from the very beginning of Genesis, we see the nature of God. God delights in providing for the physical needs of his people. Now, there's a big difference in needs and wants, okay? We've got to make sure we understand what we're talking about here. God provides for his needs of his people. doesn't mean we get everything on our wish list, but God delights in providing for our needs. Therefore, he calls us to ask him to do that. Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, just a few verses before this, part of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. So we go back to the garden, you see trees full of fruit and rivers. The point is, from the beginning, God found joy, delight in providing for the physical needs of his people. And God does not change. He is unchanging. He still does today. So as we think about the Garden of Eden, as we think of God's generous provision, the question we have to turn and ask ourselves is, are we trusting God to provide for us also? Friends, we live in a land of affluence. They're nothing like Eden. And it's so easy for us, it's so easy for me to depend on myself and not ask the Lord for daily bread, for provision. Are we trusting God who generously provides for his people? Are we trusting him to provide for us and are we asking him to do so? God cares about our bodies. He made them so he delights in providing for physical needs. Number two, though, we see in the garden account here, God delights in providing for our emotional needs also. Yes, God cares about our bodies, but God also made us with a soul and he cares about our emotional needs as well. Where do we see that here? Two ways. Go back to verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Now just pause right there. This word Eden is a Hebrew word that means delight. God planted a garden in the land of delight. Now when the Hebrew got translated into the Greek language, they translated this Greek word for Eden or for or delight as the word paradise. In fact, it's the same word Jesus used on the cross. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So God plants a garden in a land of delight, a land of paradise. What does that tell us? That tells us that God wants his people to enjoy the life that he has given them in the land, that they are to find joy and delight in the life that he has put before them. He cares about their souls, what they're feeling, and he wants them to find joy and delight, and so puts them in a land that he names delight or paradise. You see that in the second place here in verse number nine as well. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree, notice this, that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. God could have made the trees utilitarian and ugly. He didn't. They could look like cinder blocks that had little things that fall out of them. But he didn't do that. God made trees not only to provide for food, but to be pleasing, to be a delight to the eyes. God made us with an emotional capacity that wants beauty and that finds satisfaction and peace in seeing beauty. And so God made a beautiful world. You guys know I love being out in the woods, and this is part of why. Even this weekend, we took some of our friends from Fisher's Farm backpacking, and we saw forest. We saw stunning rock formations. We spent the night literally sleeping in a cloud as the fog just rolled through us all night. We saw leaves changing color and falling out of the trees. We watched the gray skies turn to blue yesterday. We watched the valley as the clouds parted open up before our eyes. We would just pause and look and wonder, God made a world that's beautiful and knew it would be good for our souls, for our emotional health to enjoy beauty in his world. Friends, I can be overwhelmed with things. I can feel stressed with things and be struggling. When I see the beauty God has made, it does a reset in my heart. Why? Because God knows we need beauty. God knows we need peace. God knows we need joy. So he made a land, a world that would give us joy and peace and he calls it Eden, a land of delight. But God didn't only give beautiful things to our eyes. He made beautiful smells too. Go down to verses 11 and 12. 
These are the verses we pass through when we normally read it going, this seems really weird. But look at verses 11 and 12. The name of the first river is the Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the holy land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. Okay, if you're like me, I had no clue what bedelium is. And I've read this many times and passed over and never stopped to investigate. Bedelium is a resin that comes from trees that smells good. It's very similar to myrrh. If you think about what the wise men brought to baby Jesus when he was born, it's a similar type thing. It is a gum resin from trees that smells good. And in the ancient world, it was used for perfume before the days of deodorant and everyone taking baths every day. This was something that was used to make us smell better. So God not only made a world visually pleasing to us, he made a world full of beautiful scents as well for God's people to use. You do realize as God is sovereign, he could have made the whole world smell like sulfur, and we would never have known any different. Now, when we were at Yellowstone last summer, and we spent about 30 minutes in the sulfur pots, I am really glad the world doesn't smell like sulfur. I mean, it, for days, I couldn't get the smell out of my nose. It was awful. God could have made the world like that, but he didn't. He made a world with the fresh scent of the rain, with the flowers that bloom where you can smell it, the perfumes that come from nature. God in his goodness made a world of delight, not just visually, but even to our smell. And if that is not enough, then God creates us in his image and tells his image bearers, you go create beauty as well. So that's why you look at humanity, does things animals don't do. That's why we create architecture that's beautiful. And that's why we create music and art and all these things because we're image bearers of God and God made us not only to long for beauty, but to create it as well and reflect his nature in making it. And so as you look at the Garden of Eden, it's much more than just there's food and water there. It's a place of visual and scent beauty and a place where man can create even more beauty because God cares for our emotional needs and our needs for beauty and peace. So the question is again, friends, do we take time in our crazy, busy lives to pause for our emotional good and to see the beauty that God has made? I'm concerned that many believers today, we've lost our love for beauty and everything we have is utilitarian instead of beautiful. We've abandoned the arts and we give little thought to looking past our screens to what's before us, to the beauty that God has made. You've heard me say before that last month, Justin and I and several others from the church went to the Keith and Kristen Getty Sing Conference. In fact, we sang two songs this morning that we had heard there at that conference. One thing that struck me at the Sing Conference, because I've been to so many theology conferences over the years, the Gettys focused on beauty. And it seems strange at first to me, I must confess, because I get to the, the big arena, and there's thousands of people there, and there's flowers all over the stage. I'm like, I've never been to a theology conference with flowers on the stage before. What's up with this? And they have like clay pots made by different potters in different colors. I'm like, why are those on the stage? That's not, there's not as much room for the, the speaker to walk around in Rome, right? You know? And they had like a painting on the stage. Every day they had a painting that had been commissioned for each day, and they even had a poet in residence. Now, I don't get much poetry, but they had a poet in residence who was creating poetry and reading poetry and stuff I've never seen done at a theology conference before. And it made me just pause and realize there was something good for my emotions, something good for my soul in that, because God made us, yes, to understand truth, but God also made us to appreciate beauty. And so often as evangelical Christians, we can abandon the love of beauty, and that has effects on our emotions and our souls. So as we look at the world that God has made here, we see God caring for the physical needs of his people, caring for their bodies. We see God caring for the emotional needs of his people and caring for their souls by creating beauty. But there's one more area here in Genesis 2 where we see God caring for his people. And the third area is God's caring for the spiritual needs of his people. God made us spiritual beings with spirits, and so he cares about our spiritual nature 
as well. Now, where is that here? It's here in two ways in this account. Number one, the focus of the garden was on meeting with God. The whole point of the garden was a special place to meet with God. Now, if you look back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we saw a few weeks ago, God blessed them and said to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, the whole earth, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. They've been given the whole earth. They had dominion over the whole earth. They weren't limited to a small garden, a big garden. They had dominion over everything. So why now is there a garden in the midst of a world that they already have dominion over everything? Because the garden was a special place that they would meet with God in a special way. In a sense, it was the first sanctuary, if you will. So if you go ahead to when the fall happens, we'll get to this down the road, but Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And notice what's different about the garden, something unique they had. Again, this is after the fall, so Adam and Eve are now hiding and in fear. But in chapter 3, verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God, of Yahweh Elohim, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now just pause right there. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. But in the garden, there was some special manifestation of the presence of God where they heard God, who's everywhere, walking in their midst. And then man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh Elohim among the trees, the many trees of the garden. But the Lord God, the God who's everywhere, called to the man and said, where are you? Do you see the picture of what the garden was? Man had dominion over the whole earth. God was everywhere on the whole earth, but he made a special garden for his people to commune with him because he cared about their spiritual needs. He wanted them to enjoy his presence. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, it's as if Adam speaks and walks with God as if they belong to one another. Adam speaks and walks with God as they belong to one another. It was a place that was to be a special experience of God's presence. Now we get a glimpse of that today in our text as well, and it's easy to miss it. Go down to verses 11 and 12. Back to the strange section on the rivers. You ready? The name of the first is the Pishon, is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. Okay, when we hear this, friends, this sounds really random to us, doesn't it? Like, be honest, it seems like a random text to us. Why in the world are we told about onyx stones and gold being there? But remember, this was written to the Jewish people originally wandering in the desert when they heard this, they would gasp at what they just heard here because the materials listed are the materials that were the most important materials for the worship in the temple where God's presence would be most fully known, the worship in the tabernacle even before there was a temple. Onyx stones, what are those? Those were the stones that we put on the priest's garments, that the priest would be adorned with. So when he went into the presence of God, he had onyx stones on his garments with the 12 tribes of Israel engraved on them. So Exodus chapter 28, verse 9 Notice this is a description of how the priest should be clothed. You shall take two onyx stones, the very onyx stones we're told in Genesis 2 here, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of the names on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signet, so you should engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You should close them in settings of gold filigree, okay? And you shall set these two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod. This is for the priest who's going to take, go into the presence of the Lord as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree. And the two chains of pure gold, twisted like cords. And you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. So when we hear, okay, 
Outside of Eden, there was plenty of onyx stones, there was plenty of gold. We're like, yeah, okay, what? The people of Israel would be like, God provided for his people, even from the beginning, to have a tabernacle and a temple where he would manifest his presence. The whole point of the garden, then later the tabernacle, later the temple, was that God's people were to worship him. In fact, you look at the need for gold in the temple, Exodus 25, verses 9 to 18. Notice the emphasis on gold in the most sacred part of the tabernacle. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. They shall make an ark. This is the ark of the covenant, friends, this most sacred thing in the middle of Israel. You shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure what? Pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of what? Gold around it, okay? You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold again, yeah? And you shall put the poles and the rings of the, on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. But it keeps going. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give to you. Now notice this. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And now it's verse 18. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. So when we hear onyx and gold, we're like, meh. The people of Israel would have heard this. They would have been stunned. Because from the very beginning, God not only made a garden where he would walk with his people, manifest his presence among his people, talk with his people, be among his people, but from the beginning, he put into this area around the garden the very things that he would then call them to use to make a tabernacle and then a temple to worship himself. So go back to verse 12. And the gold of the land is good. Remember, good means useful for its purposes, its purpose to worship God. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. So God is showing us from the beginning of the garden, he cares about the spiritual needs of his people. Why? It's what Jeremiah would later say in Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law with them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. From the beginning, God desired to relate to the people he made and desired to be worshiped by the people he made and he built that into the garden. So God cares about the spiritual needs of his people. But there's a second way that God cares about the spiritual needs of his people, and that's one of these trees in the middle of the garden. Go back to verse 9 here. Verse 9, And out of the ground Yahweh Elohim made to spring up every tree that is pleasant sight and good for food. Now notice this. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. We're coming back to that. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in the middle of the garden, God puts two trees that are different than the others. A tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, of everything God makes, we're going to look at this more in two weeks, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the only restriction that God puts in place. Look down at verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You must surely eat of any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, this Hebrew word, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the Hebrew it means a tree that gives you knowledge. It's a tree that would impart a certain knowledge to God's people beyond what he had already given to them. In other words, it would give them a knowledge that they were not supposed to have. So why would God stick a tree in the middle of the garden different from the others and says, this tree will give you knowledge, but it's knowledge that only I'm to have, not you're to have. Why would God put it there? Because they needed the reminder every day that God was God and they were not. 
And for us, one of the best things for their good and one of the best things for our good are those reminders that we are not God, the only God is God. And so God cared for their needs by giving them a powerful visual reminder in the middle of the garden that they were dependent on him, they were needy, and they were not God. And then he gives them his presence to satisfy them in the garden. And friends, God's desire to be with his people has not changed. He still cares for our needs. He still reminds us we are not God. If you slept it all last night, you had a daily reminder that you are not God. God designed us to where the rhythm of our life is we have to lay comatose a third of our life as a daily reminder that he is God and we are not. We have so many reminders in our weakness and how finite and limited we are. We are not God. He is. He is doing our good by pointing us to the fact that we are not him. And yet, just like in the garden, God still loves to pour out his grace on his people. John 1.16, one of my favorite verses in scripture. From from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. The people in the garden received it. We can too. God delights in pouring out grace on his people. And just like in the garden, God still invites us, even now in the fallen world, to come talk to him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. And it's then with confidence drawn near to the throne of grace, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And so when we think back to the garden, yes, it's a place of, of, of fruit and water to care for physical needs. Yes, it's a place of beauty for their emotional needs. But it's also a place where God puts a daily reminder that they are not God, and yet he walks with them because he cares about their spiritual nature as well. The whole garden is a picture for us, a real picture that God cares for the physical, emotional, spiritual needs of his people that he holistically, joyfully provides for all of his people. Now, there's one more related truth here that, about God's provision that's easy to miss. And that's the truth that God always will care for his people physically, emotionally, and spiritually. God will always do this. It's what he has chosen to do. Where do we see that here? Go back to verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Now, what in the world is this? A tree of life. This provision for eternal life. When God made people, people were not made to be immortal. Therefore, God puts a tree in the garden that God works through to provide life to his people to sustain their life eternally. So when man sins in Genesis 3, what does God do as the part of the punishment for this? Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat. And now if man kept eating from that tree, he would live forever. What does God do? Verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him, Adam and Eve, from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. In verse 24, he drove out the man in the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so God made the garden with a special tree next to the tree that reminds them they're not God. He puts a tree next to it to remind them that he's going to keep their life and sustain them. And so when man sins, God then makes man to where he cannot keep living forever by keeping him away from that tree. Now, what does this have to do with hoping for us that God's provision? Friends, the tree is gone, but it's coming back. We miss this often. The Bible begins and ends with the tree of life. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, as we look to what is still to come. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the, here it is, the tree of life, which is in the Eden, the paradise of God. And you go to the very last chapter of Revelation. So beginning of Genesis, we have the tree of life. End of Revelation, you have the tree of life. Revelation 22, I love this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Now pause there. 
You notice God's love for rivers here? God makes a river. This is a new heavens, new earth. There's, a, there's the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now verse 2. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life. But notice this. It's different now. It's better than what was in Eden. With its 12 kinds of fruit, you its fruit, not yearly, but each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so when we look at the Genesis and the tree of life, it not only tells us that God provides for his people then, that God's plan is to provide for his people for all eternity as well. And so he puts the tree of life even better in the new heavens and new earth with 12 kinds of fruit, not one, with a monthly harvest, not yearly, with bringing healing to the nations. And so when we look at the brokenness and the hardships of this life, it doesn't just take us back to Eden. It should be turning our hearts to when the tree of life comes back for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, when all of our physical, emotional, spiritual needs are perfectly met, when there's no sin, no temptation, no hardship, no trials to break that provision. So when we look to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, it ultimately should point us to the fact, not just that God provided for Adam and Eve, not just that God provides for us in the middle of the hardships now, that God will eternally, perfectly provide for us body, soul, spirit for all eternity. I love how Nancy Guthrie describes this. Nancy Guthrie says this, the tree of life that was in the midst of the Garden of Eden will be there, but it will have expanded to every side of the river. Instead of producing one kind of fruit, it'll produce 12 kinds of fruit. Instead of one crop of fruit a year, it'll produce a new crop of fruit every month. The abundance and satisfaction of the new heavens and new earth will far exceed what Adam and Eve ever experienced in Eden. Think about that, friends. What you and I, what awaits us in the future, new heavens and new earth, it'll far exceed what Adam and Eve experienced in Eden. The nagging sense of discontentment inherent to life in the wilderness of this world will be gone for good as the fruit of this tree will satisfy us fully and forever. And it's not just that the fruit of the tree will feed us. The leaves of the tree will heal us. In fact, the leaves of this tree will heal everything. All the scars left by sin will be healed. All the wounds inflicted by harsh words, the infection of cynical attitudes, the disfigurement of racism, it will all be healed. All the emotional scars left by abuse, the relational tearing apart caused by divorce, the societal discord caused by pride, the government corruption caused by greed, it will all be healed. Many people speak of what God is preparing for his people as a restoration of Eden. But my friends, it's far better than that. The home God intends to share with his people for all eternity will be far more secure, far more satisfying, far more glorious than the original Eden. One day his kingdom will come and his will be done on earth as is in heaven. It's going to be everything we've always longed for. It's going to be even better than Eden. So when we go back to Genesis 2 and we see seven verses here about rivers and onyx stones and gold and trees... The whole point here, friends, is that God delights in providing for his people, and that's to point us to eternity when God will forever always provide for his people. So let's bring all that together. I think you've already seen the main idea of this text, but here it is in a sentence. Here's what Genesis 2 is about here. God delights in providing for all of our needs now and forever. God delights in providing for our physical needs, our food, our weather, our clothing. God delights in providing our emotional needs, giving us beauty and peace and joy. God delights in providing our spiritual needs by reminding us every day we are not God. He is by daily walking with us and being with us. God delights in providing for the needs of his people. So he builds for Adam and Eve a perfect garden that will meet all of their needs, body, soul, and spirit. And God tells us, I will do the same for you now, and I will do the same for you for all eternity in ways that far exceed anything you can imagine. God delights in providing for all of our needs now and forever. I've got one question for us this morning, and it's quite simply this, friends. Are we taking our needs to the Lord? Friends, it's so easy for us to 
bear those burdens ourselves, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's spiritual, and to try to, in our own strength, pull ourselves up to get through whatever hardship we're going through, to provide on our own. And so often we fail to take our knees to the Lord. Friends, are we seeing the God who created and planted this garden and who has a new heavens and new earth awaiting us? Are we looking to him? Are we talking to him? Are we trusting him to provide for all of our needs, body, soul, and spirit? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are the God who is Yahweh Elohim, that you, the all-powerful God who spoke the world into being, who created man from dust and formed us carefully and breathed life into us, the God who then plants a garden with gold and onyx and trees and reminders of your bigness. God, you did all this. You're the same Yahweh Elohim who now walks with us. Yahweh who redeems us, who rescues us when we were in rebellion against you, lost in our sin, living for ourselves. You chose to reach out to us and turn our hearts to yourself. And Lord, as we think about you who have done all this and you who have promised to do even more in the new heavens and new earth, Lord, I pray you would give us a sense of awe, a sense of wonder, a sense of worship that we get to know you, Yahweh Elohim. And God, we confess as sin, Lord, we do not bring to you all of our needs but we carry so many burdens on our own instead of trusting you. We try to chart our own plans and figure our own ways to emotional fulfillment, our own ways to meet our spiritual longings and those voids in our life. So many ways to find ways to try to get security ourselves. And so little, God, do we really come to you, trusting you, Yahweh Elohim, to provide everything we need holistically. So we just want to confess that as sin. You are the provider. And so, Lord, I pray this week in my heart and the heart of these brothers and sisters that you would grow us in understanding your provision for your people. And I pray that it would lead into us, Lord, Father, hearts of great thankfulness, hearts of humility, hearts of dependence, and hearts that long to pray and talk to you, the God who can do everything and the God who delights in doing things for his people. So would you grow our trust and our hope in you this week? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're singing a closing song this morning that's very fitting as we think about that tree in the new heavens and new earth. It's a song, on that day, we will see you shining brighter than the sun. On that day, we will know you as we lift our voices when. Until that day, we will praise you for your never-ending glory. Say, let's sing to the God who is eternal, who will bring us to his presence forever. Sing, I believe in Christ. And I believe in Christ, risen from the dead. He now reigns victorious, his kingdom knows no end. And through his resurrection, death has lost its hold. And I know on that final day, Arises Jesus rose And on that day We will see you Shining brighter than the sun On that day We will know you As we lift our voice as one Till that day We will praise you For your never-ending grace We will keep on singing On that glorious day What a blessed hope Born outside in war 
eternity around our Savior's throne. And though we grieve our losses, but we grieve not in vain. ask him, Lord, are there areas in my life where I'm not trusting you to provide for me, whether physically, emotionally, or spiritually? Take him and just ask him for conviction if there's areas you're not trusting him to provide. Would you take just a minute now and confess if there are areas where you're not trusting him to provide? Would you confess that and ask him for much, much grace to grow your trust in him and his goodness even this week?
finally, would you take just a moment and ask the Lord to give you an increased longing for eternity with Him so that we live as pilgrims in this world now. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it's amazing to me in my own heart this week how much conviction can come from thinking about the garden and yet seeing in the garden your character and your goodness and your delight in providing. Lord, we confess so often we fail to trust you with all areas of our life. So would you grow us as your people in trusting you and seeing your delight in us, your people. Help us understand what it means to be loved by you and held by you and provided for by you. Or even as we've just sung, Lord, I pray you would grow our longings for eternity. That we confess that the world so often gets so appealing to us. But we want to have hearts that long, not for the things of this world, but for you and your presence forever. So God, would you grow us this week in longing for that day when we will see you face to face. And from that place of longing and looking to eternity, I pray that you give us much joy and peace and hope in the journey this week and many open doors to point others around us to the hope of heaven and eternity as well. Lord, do it in us for your glory and for our joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Sunday afternoon, Gateway.